You were saying? Welcome to episode 83 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. Tonight I am joined by the guy who bases his after work beer on how good or bad his day was. Uh, tonight was Pap's Blue Ribbon, which tells you all you need to know right there, which basically says if he's having a Labatt Blue, folks, that means the world is about to end. I am his former Labatt Blue drinking co-host, Mary. Welcome to Civil War Breakfast Club Podcast. Well, well, that was a fantastic <laughs> one there, Mary. I gotta tell you, gotta tell you, nothing wrong with a little Pap's Blue blue ribbon or a little blue day you know it's one of those days mary you know how it is sometimes oh yeah you know know how how moods tend to be god knows how you are with your mood we know we know you notice how how we're now usually recording on like a wednesday or thursday night and the tuesday mood thing is not a thing anymore no, no, no. It's a Wednesday or a Thursday thing. Today's a Thursday thing. But you, okay. know, you seem like you're in a, okay. So there you go. Seems like you're in a pretty good mood overall. I guess I'll sit around here all day till you ask what I'm drinking. I guess. Oh my god, you make me feel like a bad host. What are you drinking? Oh, thanks for asking, Mary. I'm drinking. It's called Little Victories because that's kind of what this one is tonight. It's a victory, but it's a little victory, okay? And I'm drinking out of my Union Civil War Champions Northern Mug because, frankly, I don't really have anything else to, to drink out of no. today. So um, I know what you're drinking already because I cheated and looked ahead. But what do you, I'll, I'll go ahead and um, ask you anyway. What are you drinking? I am drinking Ransack the Universe by Collective Arts, and I chose that one because uh, what happens to somebody in our episode tonight is they kind of get a little bit ransacked. And I am drinking it out of my uh, General George Gordon Mead mug because I am Team Mead. He doesn't play a huge role in this episode and in this battle we're talking about. He does a little bit at the beginning, but I do feel he gets a little bit dicked over um, and isn't treated very very fairly. So, yeah, that's why I'm drinking it out of my General Mead mug. I am Team Mead. Well, you like somebody with principles. Good, good for you. So, <laughs> now, quick question for Mary. Do you, uh, you feeling yellow? You feel yellow today? What are you, yellow? What are you, yellow? <laughs> You don't call me yellow. What was that? in Back to the Future Part Two, where the yeah. guy, where the guy had the, it was that was when they went into like whatever year it was, and he had the, everything like, what are you yellow? And then you heard the like, bark, 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 on the jacket. All right, we take this one. Okay, well, as we were saying, Mary, <laughs> you um, know so today, what I'm talking about. Okay, okay. So today we're speaking. We're talking about the Battle of Yellow Tavern. Okay, and like many, it's one of those little victories mm-hmm. that um, that has a gigantic impact on the rest of the yep. war. Now we talked before about little things here and there, but to set the stage real quick, it's May 1864. So we can go back on your way back machine, yeah. right? If I could turn back time. Yeah, I don't know why, where we started that horrible tradition. We should really start but, when we say way back machine. We should really briefly just play like a little bit of the Back to the Future theme, like the da 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 da. Okay. Okay, well, we want to get involved in discussion, Miss Helper, but that's okay. <laughs> so back in May of 1864, U.S. Grant is now in the east. He's overseeing George Meade's Army of the Potomac. Grant is in the midst of uh, what will be called his Overland Campaign. It's that aggressive, that nonstop assault uh, aimed to keep Robert E. Lee and his Army of Northern Virginia mm-hmm. on, on its heels all the way to Richmond. Now, this aggressive style from the uh, Union generals knew, you know, just talking about this, normally – after these battles in the past, they'd, they'd either get a victory or they'd take a loss, but they'd fall back and they'd lick their wounds mm-hmm. or prepare, and they'd prepare for the next move. Yeah. Now, Grant, Grant wasn't having it, right? No. After the Battle of the Wilderness, which took place on May 5th to the 7th of 1864, this is that bloodbath that yeah. cost the Union 17,000 casualties, cost the Confederates 13,000 casualties. Grant kept coming, right? Instead of falling back to reassess his, his next move, he's going to shift his army south and east 
and he's going to make changes to his army on the fly. Now, one significant change he's going to make is he's going to, he's going to install our old friend, Philip Sheridan Mary, mm-hmm. as commander of the Federal Cavalry. Now, yep. on its face, it seems like a, a normal move, but, you know, the problem with Sheridan's philosophy, okay, how the cavalry, and this is the, the big debate here we're going to talk about for a minute, is what is the role of the cavalry? Now, yeah. you know, G- George Meade, that old, you know, the old snapping turtle, mm-hmm. okay, yep. he's of the belief that the cavalry should do reconnaissance and screen. And Sheridan has a totally different idea of what he wants to do with his cavalry. Yep. He wants to be able to do his own separate missions. He wants to be able to basically fight battles. How he's going to get this is he is going to basically say like, well, I want to go get Jeb Stewart. So the lead up to this is that, you know, as you said, Sheridan is not happy with his place in the Army of the Potomac. And, you know, we're talking about how this is a little battle, like Yellow Tavern's a little battle, but it's got huge impacts. This is one of these impacts that happens before the battle. So Sheridan's not happy with his place in the AOP. He's currently taking orders from Meade, which he does not like. And he feels that they just should be independent, doing long distance raids, not just doing this like he sees it as kind of like useless recon and protecting the trains and all this other stuff. The tension between Meade and Sheridan um, in this one bio by Huntington, it just the author describes it as combustible in his Meade bio. It was combustible. And Meade had, or so what happened is Meade had ordered the cavalry to clear the road all the way to Spotsylvania Courthouse, but the Rebs are still blocking the road. So Greg, one of Sheridan's cavalry guys, is at this tavern. Meade ends up issuing orders to Greg and Merritt that will basically bypass Sheridan. After this happens, Sheridan will claim that Meade changed the orders that Sheridan had already given to Greg and Merritt. Meanwhile, what happened is Meade's orders got there first. Greg and Merritt booted it the fuck out of there. And then Sheridan's orders got there. So it was a it was a whole timing thing, but Sheridan makes it seem like, oh, Meade like, you know, rewrote my orders kind of thing. So Sheridan ends up going to Meade's tent and both of them are pissed. We're talking about Sheridan and Warren, who are the two biggest egos in the Army of the Potomac, right, at this time. And you have Sheridan and Meade, who have the probably the biggest tempers in the Army of the Potomac, and they're about to head it off with each other. Horace Porter said that Sheridan was equally fiery and smarting under the belief that he had been unjustly treated. So Sheridan tells Meade that he wants to be unleashed basically like he's like like let me go i want to do my own thing horace porter said his language throughout was highly spiced and conspicuously italicized with explicitives so so apparently mead was the first to calm down he's kind of like okay let's just defuse the situation and sheridan accused him of trying to direct the cavalry himself and Meade's like, no, I didn't mean that. And apparently in this meeting, um, Huntington describes it really well in his biography about Meade. And he said that Meade goes over and places his hands on Sheridan's shoulders and is like, you know, kind of like fa- very fatherly, like just it's OK. It's going to be OK kind of thing. Sheridan says to Meade, if I am permitted to cut loose from this army, I'll draw Stuart after me and whip him. Like, and, and this is Sheridan's other thing is he desperately wants to get Stuart. And he said, I could whip Jeb Stuart if you would only let me. But since you insisted on giving the cavalry directions without consulting or even notifying me, you could henceforth command the cavalry corps yourself. So he's really laying into it. They kind of like what, like they storm away from each other. Meade goes to Grant's tent to let him know what has happened. And Meade is expecting Grant to be all like, yeah, he was insubordinate to you. That's terrible, whatever. No, Grant says, did Sheridan say that? Well, he generally knows what he's talking about. So like, just let him do his thing. And and Meade's like, yeah. what the hell? Sheridan knew, you know, he had higher numbers. He yeah. also knew he had greater firepower. Yeah. And, you know, 
And there's a conversation they go back and forth. And this is a classic measuring contest. What's oh, going on it here, is. Right? And it, it also shows just what like Sheridan, I mean, I don't like him, but he's like Grant's little lap dog and he can do no wrong. No, I mean, there's no question about that. Don't forget too is, you know, Sheridan, let's just listen. You said he wants to go get Stewart. Now, yeah. Meade has a history with Stewart going back to Gettysburg. So he's, you know, he's telling him, listen, um, you know, I know you want to go get him, but understand this Jeb Stewart, he's very fast and he's yes. very organized. So just so you know, and Sheridan heard that and he took it as a challenge, like that Michael Jordan meme. So I took that personally. Yeah. You know, that's what it's it was. It's not a challenge. And, Hold my beer. <laughs> and so he's going to ask Grant basically, just, just like you said, for permission to take his cavalry out and away from the rest of the army and chase down Jeb Stewart. Grant, just like you said, it's like, whatever, okay. Yeah, and in this case, in, in some ways, I think Sheridan was insubordinate with the way he spoke to Meade. Like, he's basically saying, like, well, you just direct the cavalry yourself. He's acting like, a, like it's just like, whoa, are you having a tantrum over this? This is a situation of the teenager goes, Mom, I want to take the car out. Yep. I was just, no. And he goes, you know what? Just get the hell, just go. Just go, go, go. Or, and, it, or it's yeah. like, I'm going to go talk to Dad. Right, and so they do, and... And despite all of Meade's warnings and Meade's experiences with old Jeb, okay, he seems to be okay with this. He does. Mm -hmm. And so the thing about Sheridan, he's actually thought this out, though. Okay? Yeah, he has. So yep. his plan's basically kind of straightforward. He's going to take that full, the full cavalry now, and he's going to ride towards Richmond. He's going to take his time. He's going to stop and smell the daisies any chance he gets because he wants to make sure Stuart knows he's going because you want Stuart to chase after him, which, mm -hmm. of course, he does. And now if they have a chance to destroy some supplies along the way and they want to make Lee freak out a little bit that he's going to Richmond, well, that's cool, too. Yep. But the primary goal is he doesn't really have real plans to go to Richmond. He really doesn't. No. He, what he wants is he wants Stuart. Okay, he, want, he wants him bad. And he knows if he moves out with that, Sheridan's got a gigantic number advantage here. Sheridan is going to know that he has a big numeral, you know, advantage. He knows yeah. he's going to have it. Now he probably surmises. Stuart probably knows it too. May a Sheridan's going to begin his ride, and he's going to slip away from Spotsylvania, which is where they were, and he's going to begin that slow ride towards Richmond. Again, he's going to take his time because he's looking for a fight. He's not trying to get to Richmond. He's going to have twelve thousand troopers and thirty-two pieces of artillery with him. This is going to be the strongest cavalry force. In the, in the entire eastern theater of this war. It's going to be a monster of a cavalry. 13 miles take, long. 13 miles long. He'll take all three divisions, Wesley Merritt, David McMurtry, Greg, run DMG, okay, <laughs> and James James and James yeah. Wilson. So he's taken the whole shooting match with this. And so, right, you know, and guess what happens? As if on cue, Stuart is going to go, well, I better get going then. Yep. So he's going to begin his pursuit of Sheridan. He's only got 4,000 guys. Okay. Now, quick math on you, Mary. That's going to be like a three to one ratio, a four to one ratio. We're yep. talking big numbers here, right? And Stewart's going to know it. He knows he's down on manpower. He, he realizes that, you know, he has to get between Sheridan and Richmond because he thinks he's going to Richmond too, right? And that's right? exactly what they wanted to do was to start freaking right. Richmond out. And Sheridan is very confident in his ability to get Stuart as he was with like Meade and Grant. Sheridan tells David Gregg, we will give him a fair square fight. We are strong and I know we can beat him. And in view of my recent representations to General Meade, I shall expect nothing but success. Colonel James Kidd, who was with uh, some of the Michigan troopers, said Sheridan went out with the utmost deliberation, looking for trouble, seeking it, and desiring before every other thing to fight Stuart and fight him on his nat 
like on his native hearth. Like, I mean, this is yeah. this is you going to the mine on a Saturday night. You're looking, you're looking for trouble. Okay, that's what he's doing, right? Now, it, he, but what Stuart, <laughs> what Stuart does know though, Stuart knows he has to move fast because he knows that any chance he yeah. has is got to get ahead of him, okay, and try to find a way to trick him, trap him, do something, okay. Now, Jeb at his disposal, as I mentioned, he's got four thousand guys. He's gonna under the command of a guy named William Wickham and yeah. a guy named Lunsford Lomax. We'll talk about. Mm-hmm. He's also got a brigade under uh, James Gordon too, but it's primarily Wickham and, and Lomax. That's pretty much who it is. Early on the on the morning of May 9th, that that beginning part, that vanguard, if you will, of Wickham's troops are going to begin to catch up with the Savannah of Sheridan's men. Because remember, Sheridan's taking his sweet-ass time, okay? He's only moving at four miles an hour, which he's capable of moving, like, a lot faster um, as well. But, you know, the troopers are riding, like, you know, four across. They've got 32 guns. They've got forage for their horses and mules and all that. And they're loaded with food and ammo as well. But they are taking their sweet-ass time with this. But they're taking their time. And uh, so Wickham's guys do get behind them and start to nip at their heels a little bit as they approach a place called Beaver Dam Station. Mm-hmm. Now, while at Beaver Dam, okay, Sheridan is going to take advantage and he's going to do those Beetlejuice, those cavalry things we talk about, right? Yeah. Um, he's going to utilize George Custer. We'll talk a lot about him tonight. Yeah. Um, they're going to rip up train tracks. They're going to destroy and they're going to capture supplies. They're going to get flour and bacon and liquor and all the usual stuff a growing boy needs, right? Yeah. They're also going to liberate 400 Union prisoners there who are who have been caught, who are in the process of being transported to Richmond, okay? Yeah. So they're going to pick up some guys. Now, Sheridan's choice to stop Beaver Dam Station is very smart, okay? And not just because of the supplies. You know, remember, his primary goal is to draw Stuart out, okay? Yeah. That's what he wants. So in that regard, why is it important? It's because of who lives in Beaver Dam Station. And that's Stuart's wife, Flora, and her two kids, okay? Yeah. So invading the town that his wife and kids live in is putting out the bat signal for Jeb Stuart. So now yeah. he's definitely going to be going there. So... This is going to personally pretty much ensure that not only is Stuart's cavalry going to go, but personally he's going to go. And so Sheridan's going to continue. Um, he's going to get through there, and he's going to continue that slow roll through Virginia. Yeah. Um, under that guise, he's still going to Richmond. Yeah, and he's going to he's going to keep going. Um, the one thing that does happen is like May 10th, 1864, Stuart does visit his wife, Flora. Um, mm-hmm. And then apparently after the meeting, he said to one of his staff officers, Major um, Reed Venable, that he did not to expect to survive the war. I don't know how it is we have these final words of men who are about like, I'm kind of going to give away the ending here, about to die. But they always say mm-hmm. like, oh, I think I'm not going to make it. And then like 24 hours later, they get mortally wounded or they die. Well, yeah, I mean, the day they beat it by one day, the 10th, you know, Sheridan has vacated the yep. dance floor, right? As you say, he's gone. And, you know, and he, you know, Stuart will go visit Flora, just like you said, and his two kids, Jimmy and Virginia, you know, um, Jeb Jr., they call him yep. Jimmy, okay? They did have another daughter, Flora, who died a year, a year or two before that. Mm-hmm. But so he has two kids. Um, but he was extremely relieved and happy that they were safe. Yeah. Um, and he did get to hang out with them for a little while. And, um, there's a story where we kiss Flora goodbye before moving on. And like you said, you don't want to give away the ending here, but little did he know that that was his final goodbye to Flora. Yeah. It was going to be that, it was going to be that day. And we'll, yeah. we'll talk, you know, we'll talk about that. But when, uh, when he does go, um, you know, Jeb is going to put Gordon in charge uh, of his men to continue to try to hit Sheridan's rear yep. in the hopes of what he wants to do is slow them down because he wants Lomax and Wickham to be able to get around now 
to get between Sheridan and Richmond. Now, Stewart at this point, again, still thinks he's going to Richmond, yep. but he has, he has no idea that he has this big target on him, right? So by 8 o'clock in the morning on May 11th, okay, Stewart's men, primarily guys under Lomax, are going to get ahead of Sheridan and they're going to arrive at an intersection of a road called the Telegraph Road and Mountain Road, which yep. is just north of a shitty three-story inn that's yellowed that all the locals call Yellow Tavern. Yeah. Okay. Sounds like a place you go to on a Friday night in Goddard, by the way. It, <laughs> it does. actually does sound like, like a ye olde saloon. <laughs> we got places like that here, too. But um, the troops under Wendell William Wickham, they haven't arrived yet, okay? And so Stuart is going to put Lomax's men across that telegraph yeah. road. What he wants to do, his plan is he wants to he wants to set up Lomax, and then when, when Wickham gets there, he wants to set them up a little further north at a right angle. Think of like a seven, okay, mm-hmm. where Lomax is going across and Wickham's going down. And this way, when Sheridan comes, they're going to start to fight with Lomax, and then Wickham is going to charge at him, hit him in the flank. Yep. That's what, that's what that's kind of in a nutshell what Stewart's thinking going into this because he's down like a three to four to one man ratio. So that's the only way he thinks he can really do it is get them in this trap, okay? Lomax is going to make it near the Yellow Tavern. Um, by the time they get there, they are wiped the F out. They're tired yeah. from riding all night. They're tired. Yeah. They're wiped up. And this is the benefit of Sheridan taking his time as his men are going to be arrested. Exactly. Like, he, he, you know, his men are taking the time. And this is when Stuart, when he arrives there, he sends Bragg, who is in command of the city's defenses at Richmond, he says, my men and horses are tired, hungry, and jaded, but all right. That sounds kind of, it's like, you, I don't know what he's trying to get at with that message. But, you know, the other thing, too, um, to remember is, like, Stuart's reputation in the North is one of invincibility. Um, you know, like, by 1864, um, like, Stuart's invincibility is all but accepted, but fact within the army of the Potomac, which that's probably why Meade was like, you really want to go after this guy? But Sheridan's all like, yeah, whatever, I've, I've got it. Um, you know, so, but, but Jeb Stewart is, I think, you know, I got to wonder if at this time at Yellow Tavern, when he's saying this to brag that my men are tired, they're hungry, but we're okay. It's like, is he starting to question his ability to fight, you know, and protect well, Richmond? He's going to send his his chief of staff, Henry McClellan, yeah. to Richmond. Okay, yeah. and we'll, we talk a lot about him. A lot of a lot of the stuff that comes later on with this is for, it's from McClellan. But um, you know, he he's going to go there and he's going to talk to Old Braxy, who's in who's in you know yeah. in, in Richmond now, who's um, an advisor to Jefferson Davis, saying, "Can you guys defend the city? Because I can't." This is what Stewart's saying. Yeah, and that's why uh, he's telling. Uh, that's why he's sending that message saying, "Like my men and horses are tired, hungry, and jaded, but all right." Like other words, like. <laughs> don't expect me to do much here dude for you he's like he's like you, you better you know whatever but so Lomax is gonna find Lomax is gonna find himself in that around eight o'clock in the morning setting up his men along that telegraph road yeah now real quick on Lunsford Lomax interesting fellow Mary he's a he New is. Englander okay mm-hmm. uh who was born in Newport Rhode Island in November of 1835 ah uh, Rhode and Islander he was, he was a son of Virginia royalty Virginia though okay his father fought in the war of 1812 in New Orleans against you Canadians probably, and his great, his great, his um, we were in a country then. Oh God, here we go. Um, and his great grandfather, who's also named Lunsford, he was a member of the Virginia House of Burgesses in the 1750s. Right, his grandfather Thomas was also a member of the Virginia House of Delegates. So, so this Lomax family's big in Virginia. Now, uh, his father is going to, um, his father is going to die, and they're going to be living at the time in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which mm-hmm. is not far from here, right outside of Boston, right. 
Um, and they're going to move to Washington, D.C. at this point. And this is when young Lunsford is going to enroll in West Point's He'll be in the class of 1856. He'll finish 21st overall. He'll be a classmate of Fitzhugh Lee, who we'll be talking about later on with this. Yep. They're going to be in the same class, right? Um, after West Point, Lomax is going to end up in that 2nd U.S. Cavalry, that really good Cavalry regiment. Mm-hmm. And um, he's going to end up in Bleeding, Kansas. He's going to be doing that. But he may be a New Englander by birth, but he's a Southerner by heart. He yeah. is, right? So after Fort Sumter in April of 61, He's going to quit the army and he's going to join the Virginia State Militia and he will serve under our old friend Joseph E. Johnston, Mary. That's where he's going to end up with him. He will find himself, jump ahead a little bit, he'll find himself at Gettysburg on the 11th, Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, where he will um, get his star eventually. He'll be uh, reunited with his former classmate, Fitzhugh Lee. And, you know, it's funny about Lomax, Mary. He's not really known for Gettysburg. He just isn't. No. But you know what? You know what he does after the war? He is going to become the commissioner of the, of the uh, Gettysburg National Military Park. Really? So he's going to end up, he's going to be the grand pool so bar must, of the battlefield. I mean, even though he's not well, like, I mean, I would not, when I think Gettysburg, I would not think Lomax at all. Actually, when I hear the name Lomax, I think of Weekend at Bernie's. No, uh, well, I think that's probably <laughs> That's exactly what I'm picturing right now. <laughs> all right. So let's, let's, let's see what old Lunsford's doing. It's eight o'clock in the morning. He's probably got his Dunkin' Donuts going. He's sitting there in that line waiting. Uh, near that yellow tavern about nine o'clock the initial line of sheridan's guys and yep. a customer are going to start to hit the skirmishes mm-hmm. so this is only one hour after his dead tired men have got there and set up here comes the union guys already the federals are moving down a road down the modern day woodman road they're gonna be coming right at him yep now once the skirmishing starts sheridan knows here's the thing when the skirmishing starts sheridan okay He's um he's rubbing his hands going excellent because he knows exactly he's found Stuart now. Exactly. He knows he's got yeah. him. So now he's like, I'm gonna fight. I, I know where he is, I got him, and this is the deal. So Lomax is gonna do it his best. He's gonna set up his uh he's gonna set up his brigade, he's gonna be sixth Virginia, um, and then he's gonna have the fifth Virginia in the middle along with the fifteenth on their right. Jeb is gonna be there helping to direct the troops. He's gonna try to, you know, puppet master the whole thing. Stuart knows pretty quickly. At this moment, he doesn't have enough guys. He knows he doesn't, and he knows he's basically screwed. What happens is, you know, Sheridan, they start to approach the line, okay? Sheridan's going to approach the line first with Wesley Merritt, and mm-hmm. he's going to have Thomas Debbin, speaking of Gettysburg, on his right. Yep. He's going to have Alfred Gibbs in the middle and George Custer on his right. So pretty big battle line here, okay? They're yep. all going to be dismounted. This is cavalry now, but they're going to be dismounted. Mm-hmm. Just a couple of regiments are going to stay in the back on the horses. Custer's got a couple of regiments he's going to keep in the back. But as Merritt advances on the rebel line, um, Lomax is going to Leroy Jenkins it, and they're all going to run out. Yeah, they're going to they're going to attack, and they're going to uh, they're going to hit Merritt's dismounted men, and it's going to result in brutal hand to hand combat yeah. right along the Telegraph Road. Yeah, but Merritt, like you know, he's attacking, he's repulsed, and he attacks again. the The other thing to remember too with this battle is the the weaponry that each side is is using. So Stewart's men are. They're just armed with single shot muzzle loaders. Sheridan's men have, have, have the Spencer carbines. The rapid firing, like not only are is Stuart outnumbered, but he's at a technological disadvantage as well at this battle. Um, yeah, with, we, we, with saw, the we saw those guns at, at Gettysburg with those back at East yeah. Calvary Field with with, yep. with the fifth and sixth Michigan, especially Custer's guys. So yep. so yeah, so right off the right off the bat, he knows he knows he's in trouble. Yep. And the other thing that's going to affect him, that we're going to talk about in a second. Okay, he doesn't have all his men yet. Okay, we'll talk about that in a second. But so Devon's brigade, 
This is guys from the fourth, the sixth, the ninth, New York, the 17 PA. They're going to move. They're going to end up going south of Lomax position. They're going to get on their flank. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when they do that, this is going to force Lomax and GTFO out of the area because he's screwed at this point and he's going to, he's going to fall back. So that initial line of Confederates is already broken. Now here's why Stewart's plan doesn't work is two reasons. One, Walter, um, William Wickham's not there yet. He's a little late. Okay. Mm-hmm. He gets in a skirmish earlier and he gets delayed. The other thing is Sheridan got there early. Yeah. So it needed, so at his plan of, having Lomax hold and Wickham come and hit their flank, that's not going to happen anymore, okay? So now Lomax is on the run, okay? And so by the time that Wickham gets there, his only real choice is to set up somewhere else, a little further north of, of Telegraph Road, of where of where Yellow Tavern is, okay? Now Lomax is going to fall back pretty damn quick, and he's going to move. he's going to continue to move north with his men as fast as he can, because what he wants to do now is he wants to hook up with Wickham. He wants to set mm-hmm. up a line with Wickham now because he knows he can't do it by himself. He knows he needs he needs support, okay? Lomax is going to be running north. He has to jump five fences and fields along the way. I mean, this, this is cavalry here, okay? So he's having a, he's having a tough time. Oh he, has to cross a, he has to cross a creek called Traveler's Run. And this is while they're, they're running their friggin' lives. I and mean, they're, they're going. And Wickham's line is going to get that they are going to set up on a ridge that runs parallel to um, to the modern day route 295. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the 295 runs right through it. And then behind 295 is that ridge that we're going to talk about. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lomax and his men, you know, they are going to get there. They are able to connect with Wickham and with this entire rebel cavalry together. Now it's still about, still about 4,000 guys. Stewart is going to take this opportunity to try to create some kind of defensive line now. So his plan is FUBAR that he initially had. Now he's like, well, I'm kind of screwed, yep. but I have terrain. Mm-hmm. I have guys I can line up. So I think I've got to, I think I can still do something, but he knows his plan right up the bat's falling apart. Yeah, it is. And I think he's re- recognizing, you know, kind of that, like, and I'm sure the union has realized at this point, wow, he's not the invincible Stuart that the papers have made him out to be. And I'm sure Stuart is real. I mean, Stuart is a guy that he didn't like to admit when he, you know, he wouldn't take, you know, he, he would not take blame. He would not say, oh, that was my fault kind of thing. And this is one where it's falling apart before his eyes. You know, yeah, I mean, he, but he, but he, he has a chance to fight defensively. Yeah. He's fought with odd, bad odds before. He yeah. knows the terrain. He knows the land. And, and he's just, he's fighting in his mind. He's fighting to save Richmond. Yeah. Right? So this but is, this is not so- the Jeb Stewart of 1862 that rode around McClellan. The post Gettysburg Jeb Stewart is very different from that. Um, no, yeah. he, he is, but he still has the reputation. Exactly. His men are still going to men are still going to follow him. They still yeah. look at him a certain way. I mean, has he lost a lot of fastball? Probably, but yeah. again, he's he's still Jeb Stewart. I mean, mm-hmm. um, so what they're going to do is they're going to set up this big long line that's yeah. going to cross Telegraph Road. He's going to have Wickham. He's going to line up on on the Rebel left with the first, the second, the third, the fourth Virginia along with a battery of artillery under a guy named uh, William Griffith, okay, which will be very important. We're going to talk about Lomax is going to be on Wickham's left. Um, and once they're all in place, they literally sat and waited. They just waited, okay? The attack that they thought was going to come quickly didn't come right away, okay? And the reason why was, you know, Custer and the boys, they kind of smelled out a rat here a little bit. They did. So, so Custer is going to do a little recon, 
Okay, which is ironic because that's what Meade said Calvary's supposed to do anyway. So yeah. here we go, right? Custer is going to go up there. He's going to get a good look at this Confederate line. And he's going to sit there and he's going to realize, okay, there are 4,000 guys in a battle line with artillery. They're going to be on a ridge. So we'll have to go uphill. And they're, in, they're behind a, uh, a, a stream called Turner's Run. So right off the bat, it's like, well, this, this is going to be good, tough. But Stuba Custer... You know, despite him, besides, despite Stuart being in a good position, he feels he feels that he's got a pretty good chance because the numbers that he can attack with success. So he's going to ride back to Sheridan mm-hmm. and to report what he saw. Now he's going to tell he's going to tell Sheridan probably something along the lines of, "We got this. Yeah, we got it. It's ours. So let let's friggin' go." And so, yep. hear, hearing this opinion, Sheridan probably you know, in hearing about the situation, he oh yeah, the hell out of that. And he certainly did. And he's he's going to go. So they're going to come up with a game plan on how to attack this. Because it is a formidable thing, right? The plan is the first thing they need to do is they get to deal with Griffith's battery. Okay, that artillery, okay? And that's going to be the focal point of this attack. So that end, what Custer is going to do, he's going to send the first Michigan, that, this is all cavalry, yep. to charge the guns and go straight at the guns. Okay? He's going to get support from the 7th Michigan and the 1st Vermont, Okay. And this is different. That's from, from Wilson's division, but they're going to go full banana right yep. at the guns. That's a, you don't want, that's a shitty Monday morning for somebody. Okay. I'm telling you that right now. Yeah. Mondays okay? are shitty enough. I don't and this. Un- unlike, unlike previous, the previous part of this battle, they're going to be mounted this time. Yeah. They're going to be, they're going to be on the horses this time. Okay. While this is going down, Custer is going to dismount his men from the fifth and sixth Michigan. Yep. Okay. We just talked about them. They will attack the middle of Wickham's line. Okay, this is all going to be simultaneous. Okay, on Custer's left, another brigade from from Wilson's division under George Chapman. This is going to be the Eighth New York and the Third Indiana. They're also going to attack. Now, on the Rebel left uh, is Lomax's battered line. They were the ones who took that initial brunt. Um, this is where Alfred Gibbs's reserve brigade consisted of the 19th New York, uh, the fifth, the 12th uh, U.S. Cavalry, as well as the sixth Pennsylvania. They're going to attack Lomax. So all of these regiments are all assigned to hit a certain part of the line. Okay. It's very strategic. So at four o'clock in the afternoon, the federal cavalry is going to start this attack. So daylight's running, we're running a late now, but they know what they're going to do and they're going to launch it right at four o'clock. Yep. And this is where like Stuart at this time, he is at the front of what is becoming a very broken line and he's trying desperately to rally his men. Well, it's, it's, it, it, at first, I mean, when Kasha sends in the, especially the, the you know, Kasha's going to say after the battle, I got a yeah. quote here. He says, as soon as the first Michigan moved from the cover of the woods, the enemy divined our intention and opened a brisk fire from artillery with shell and canister. So what is basically, as soon as these guys start, they're going to get, they're starting to get pounds on them. Now they're charging the guns under fire. Yep. They are going to ride really hard at Griffin's guns fast in um then it's going to be pretty much really fast and hard and they are going to penetrate that line oh, we're going to do that okay <laughs> and while while they do that Stuart's standing watching this happen he okay is, yep now Stuart is going to call up reinforcements he's going to get company k from the first virginia yep. under wickham he's going to move them over and they're going to have a lot of success driving michigan these michigan men back okay success like an alabama football team has against michigan men. that's how bad <laughs> this is going to be but they are going to have success. But to plug the gap, 
because there were gaps. Stewart's going to have to do this personally. He's going he's gonna to whip out his pistol, okay? Mm-hmm. And he's going to join trying to slow those Michigan men, those Michiganders, you want to yep. call them. And this is going to prove to be a very bad idea for Jeb Stewart. It is. It's going to be very, very bad because that is when a man is going to approach Stewart and from 10 to 15 feet away, he's going to take out his pistol and he's going to fire it and it's going to hit Stewart's side. And Stewart is going to fall. He's going to clasp his right side. His hat falls off and he, he kind of wa- like, you know, he's wobbling around and his men are like the general, the general. Um, and then he ordered Stewart is, you know, sat against a tree and he orders all of his men back to the line and an ambulance arrives um, along with Fitzhugh Lee and Stewart relinquished the command of the cavalry to him saying, go ahead, old fellow. I know you'll do what is right. Now, this man who shot Stewart is from the 5th Michigan, allegedly. Colonel oh. Russell Alger, commander of the 5th Michigan, would write would claim it was his very own man, Private John Huff. Now, this is disputed. It is not 100% known. There are sources that say we don't know the man who shot Jeb Stewart, and there are sources that say it was probably John Huff. Um, I think that's enough to warrant talking a little bit about John Huff in this episode. Um, do, in my opinion, I think he probably was the man who shot Jeb Stewart. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I know you're going to tell the story real quick. You know, yep. Alger, Russell Alger is going to say, yeah, it was him. Mm-hmm. Custer is going to later agree. Yeah, yep. okay. And, you know, there's a lot of debate. Was was the fifth in the area? A lot of people think it was the first Michigan but again, we'll never know. We weren't there. We were not there. We yeah. were looking at back at this now with nearly 160 years, right? And we'll never know um, 100% what happened. My opinion is it probably was Huff. It might not have been, and it could have been. But again, we'll never know 100% fact. So right. I, I don't think roof. I don't think you can say either way. But if your opinion is it was him, great. If not, good. Well, yeah, the, the story is, you know, if, and again, it, it's what happens, not debated. Uh, someone ran by and yep. shot him as he was and running just, by. With, with it, the pistol. Okay. Yeah. It, it was a run by shooting is what it was. Yeah. Okay, Typical Canadian happened. move. Oh, okay, I just exactly. gave away where Huff is from. <laughs> so, um, so, so Private John Huff, he is 47 years old at the time of this battle. He was born in 1816 at a place called Holland Landing in Ontario, uh, Canada. So he is, yes, I'm going to say it. I know my country was not officially a country at the time, but we were still Canada. He is a Canadian. He's from Ontario. So he's from my province. He was born about three hours from where I live. Um, in 1841, he's going to marry Abigail Barbara Culver in New York state. They are going to move and settle in Michigan. Not much is known about him. All that is known really is this is the man who shot Jeb Stewart. Um, and he's a sharpshooter. He was apparently with Burdan sharpshooters. He joined, he's part of the 5th Michigan at the time of this battle, obviously. Um, unfortunately, John Huff is not going to live to tell his story. He's not going to live to be able to say, yes, I was the man that shot Jeb Stewart. Because um, on May 28th, 1864, he's during um, the Battle of Hawes Shop. He's going to be shot in the head. And he's going to spend several weeks um, at a military hospital before he's sent home to Armada, Michigan by train. And he will pass away on June the 23rd, 1864. And he's buried in Willow Grove Cemetery in Armada County, Michigan, which is actually only a couple hours from me. And I really need to go see his his grave. Um, but 
you know, like, like we said, we don't know for certain that he shot him. Uh, I believe that he, he probably did. There's to me, there's enough evidence there and that's just my my opinion on it um but well, it's I mean, worth it enough to tell to tell his story that this this could very well be the man who shot jeb stewart a canadian yeah, I mean, took down one of the great so-called greatest confederate cavaliers i mean well, i mean we'll never, we'll never know i mean certainly history i think most people when you look at the death of jeb stewart i think you know huff is the guy that comes up with it again yeah. you can you can debate this stuff all day look there are people who Probably just as much evidence to say it wasn't there was there is, but you know what? We'll give. We Papa's don't. We'll, yeah. We'll, okay. Yeah. We don't one hundred percent know, um, and because of that, you know, and even then, if Huff is a soldier fighting in the Civil War, let's tell his story a little bit and let's have his name be known. So maybe we can, you know, other people, you know, if there's somebody listening to this in Armada, Michigan, maybe they'll go visit his grave now because I doubt he gets visited very much. Yeah, probably you know? not. You know, but you know, we'll talk about. The, the rest of Stuart here in a few minutes. So we'll finish with the battle, then we'll talk about Stuart. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Stuart, Stuart does go down. You know, Custer is going to send in that 7th Michigan in the 1st Vermont uh, as as a reserve, and they're going to overwhelm the rebels, and the rebels are going to take off. That's going to be it. Just, uh, Sheridan is going to get his victory, and that's going to be, that's going to be, in essence, the end of the Battle of Yellow Tavern. But we're going to talk the rest is about Stuart, okay? Yeah. It's important. So, you know, his his plight the rest of this is, is fascinating in a lot of different ways. So, you you kind of alluded to it a little bit. So, you know, so um a lot of the a lot of the, the dialogue that comes from this comes from from Henry uh, McClellan, mm-hmm. his chief of staff, which is a yeah. really good read if you had a chance to read his stuff. So, basically what he what he describes, he's pretty pretty descriptive. He says after he's been shot, Stuart's going to stain his horse uh holding his side okay yeah his hat's gonna fall off the horse and the horse is, is gonna become uncontrollable okay but he stays in the saddle um because uh, captain gustavus dorsey a close staffer of stewart is gonna see him reeling on the saddle and knows he's been shot okay so dorsey is gonna help get stewart off this horse that's being tough to control and he's gonna place him under that tree you mentioned he's gonna wait for a new horse now mm-hmm. stewart is gonna order dorsey to leave him just go and his subordinate's going to refuse, and he's going to say, uh, I'll, you know, I'm going to stay with you until I get you a new horse. And he does, and he's going to get him on that horse, and he's going to get him to the rear, where he's going to hand Stuart off to a private named Private Wheatley, who's going to put him in the ambulance. Now, Wheatley reportedly is going to end up holding Stuart in his arms the whole way in the ambulance to Richmond, okay? Yeah. Now, it's as, the, as Stuart's in the ambulance... Um, he's going to be yelling to his men because don't forget, this is the 7th Michigan and the 1st Vermont are still coming. So he's still trying to lead his men. He's going to yell, go back, go back and do your duty as I have done mine. Our country will be safe. I would rather die than be whipped. That's what he allegedly says. Now, this is it. So (laughs) before he gets the ambulance moving, he's sitting in there. One of his staffers is a guy named William Houlihan. And for some reason, Stewart calls him Honey Bun when he approaches him. Okay. Stuart, <laughs> Stuart says to him, honey bun, how do I look in the face? Okay. And Houlihan, okay, says to him, general, you are looking right well. You will be all right. And then Jeb responds, I don't know how this is going to turn out, honey bun, but if it's God's will and I shall die, then I am ready. Honey Talk about bun. weird. That's what he called him. Okay. So they're about 15 miles away from Richmond at this point. And they have to take a circuitous route back because the Union presence there, as well as the bad roads, they're going to finally going to get to Richmond after dark. And they're going to arrive at the house of Stuart's brother-in-law, a guy named Dr. Charles Brewer Mm -hmm. on Gray Street in Richmond. Now, Brewer 
knows pretty quickly it's a mortal wound, the best he can do is put ice on it. Just ice up, son. Just put ice on it, right? Try to make him comfortable. Now, back at Beaver Dam Station, Flora and her children have no idea of this injury to Jeb Stewart. The reason why is because Sheridan cut the telegraph lines. So they couldn't telegraph Flora, okay? Uh, when they ransacked it a couple of days. Or I always thought it was ironic that after all the telegram telegraphs that Stewart destroyed, like Gettysburg campaign, the B&O Railroad, for example, yeah. that they can't get a hold of his wife because someone else cut the telegraph lines. You it's know like what's, little, it, those little things, you know? You know what's really funny is the second beer that I have to drink drink tonight is called Karma. And, oh. I, and I chose it for that reason. <laughs> oh, it's pretty funny. But so obviously it became very important, you know, that they get news to Florida. They want Florida to get to Richmond as soon as possible. So they're going to send a message up to Beaver Dam and let her know what happened and get down to Richmond as soon as possible. Now, we'll, we'll talk about what happens, but spoiler alert, she ain't going to get it in time, okay? But no, it's just sad. Night, no, it is. But the night of May 11th, okay, which is predictably a horrible one for Jeb Stewart, you know, he is in constant and increasing pain throughout the night, mm-hmm. but he's going to remain alert. He's going to remain conscious, the morning of May 12th, the reality of his impending death is starting to clearly focus on Stuart now. Now, while he's alert, he begins to write his will out while he's lying there. Yeah. He's passing. He's, so he, he does this impromptu will. He wants his aides, Henry McClellan, we talked about, and Andrew Venable, you mentioned, to get his horses. Now, what's funny about Jeb Stewart, he still has a sense of humor at this point. He does, yeah. You know, he's going to tell Venable he wants him to get the bigger horse because he's big. And he's going to get McClellan the smaller one because Venable can't ride on the small horse. So he's kind of, he got fat shamed on his deathbed. <laughs> fat shamed. Talk about that, right? And so <laughs> he's going to, he's going to order his spurs to be given to Mrs. Lily Lee, a woman yeah. in Shepherdston, uh, now West Virginia. Uh, and he's going to give his sword to his son. He's going to pull off his hat, and inside of his hat is going to be a small Confederate flag that he received from a woman in in Columbia, Mm -hmm. South Carolina. He's going to ask one of his aides to make sure that this flag gets back to her and let her know that, thank you, but you can have this back now. Sometime in the afternoon of the 12th, who comes on the knocking on the door is Jefferson Davis. Yeah, I was just about to mention about Jeff Davis coming to see him, and he comes in and he says, General, how do you feel? And Stewart answered, easy but willing to die if God and my country think I have fulfilled my destiny and done my duty. So it's always just like, well, it doesn't, doesn't sound very promising. Right? Yeah, so it's like, Stewart's, Stewart's, Stewart's pains have continued throughout the day. And he's, he's finally going to ask Dr. Brewer, hey, um, am I going to survive the night here? And Brewer says, nope. He's like, well, and as the day goes on, Stewart's condition is going to worsen. Um, and all the while, he keeps asking if floor is coming. Yeah, this is and so it's sad, sad, right? It's so and sad. So, and, and it got to the point where he's told, no, she's not here. It got to the point where every time the door opened, he would jerk up to see if it was her. He kept looking to see if it was Flora, and it never was, right? Yeah. It, is, it is sad. Um, according to Henry McClellan, that chief of staff we talked about, Stewart's going to begin to lose focus around now. He's going to start to get a little daffy, I mean, yeah. as, as imagined. And McClellan writes, he reviewed in broken sentences all the glorious campaigns around George McClellan on the peninsula beyond the Potomac and up the Rapidan, quoting orders and issuing new ones to the couriers with the last injunction to make haste. And Stewart's clearly dying now. He's on the yep. way out. And the doctors tell him, uh, you know, General, if the final enemy is approaching, that's what he says to him. Oh okay. My God. And at this point, Stewart, he's going to ask everyone in his room 
to sing Rock of Ages around his bedside. That was his favorite song. Stuart, like, the one thing about Stuart is he always had, like, a band with him. Like, he's kind of he's, he's like know, the Confederate who, rock star. Who would have guessed the band would be Def Leppard? That's the weird thing about it. <laughs> But God, Rock of Eight, Rock of Eight is what he yeah, wants. Yeah, Rock play. of that because that was his favorite, one of his favorite songs. But yeah, Stewart is this kind of, you know, very much. I, I sometimes call him the drama queen of the the cavalry of the Civil War because you know he's got like, like the feather in his hat. He's always got a band. He l- loved to, um, you know, he loved to sing and all that. Um, another thing about Stewart, he was very religious too, which is interesting. He was as well, he and he was. was actually at West Point. I got to get this reference in. He was very good friends with Oliver Otis Howard. Well, there we go. There we go. There's yeah. a everybody take a drink. Mm-hmm. But they're going to sing "Rock of Ages." He's going to be too weak to join in, but they're aware he's doing it. Mm-hmm. And when they and when the song is over, they finally get stopped singing. Whatever, whatever happens there. He then says, "I'm going fast now. I am resigned. God will is done." Okay, Stewart's not long after that's going to lose consciousness for good. And he's going to die at 7.38 p.m. that day on the 12th. Okay? And we are recording this episode on the anniversary on of day. his death. Almost exactly. Almost on the hour, too. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the sad part is Flora never makes it to the bedside. No. She's going to get to Dr. Brewer's a couple hours later at 11.30. She's going yep. to miss him by about four hours. Oh, that's so, so sad. So, so their goodbye at Beaver Dam was their real goodbye. And it's ironic that Sheridan wanted to chase down Stewart. And perhaps by going to Beaver Dam, he allowed Stuart to see his wife one last time before yeah. he died. Because he probably wouldn't have if no. he didn't go there. Yeah. Right. So it's just how it is. So the thing about Jeb, you know, Jeb's going to die. He'll be buried the next day in Richmond at yeah. Hollywood Cemetery yep. on the 13th, right? And there's no military honors. His men are all fighting, okay? And what's interesting is there's no troops to do a salute of guns. You know, the 21 gun salute, whatever. But you know what's going on? The Battle of Spotsylvania. Yeah, in the in the distant and they could hear the distant guns wow. during the funeral. And they used that as the salute, which which I always thought was a very fascinating little piece of history. You know, um, you know, it, it yellow, you know, after Yellow Tavern, just, just to finish up this whole thing with Sheridan, you know, he does try to break through the lines a little bit at Richmond, but not really. He's gonna kind of half-ass it and blow right past it. He's gonna cross the Chickahominy River. Um, he's going to go meet up with our old friend Benjamin Butler over yep. there across the James River. He'll get resupplied, and he's going to head back to Grant. He's going to get to get back to Grant on the 24th of February at Chesterfield Station. So he's going to end up making that big circular route. Yep, and he and, did. You know, he did everything that was fulfilled. And you know, it, it's it's funny how he managed. He, I mean, Stuart or not Stuart, Sheridan does all that is asked of him in orders that were ironically written by Mead. Mead, yep. had, Mead had to go back and write these orders out to him, which, you know, mm-hmm. like immediately concentrate your available mounted force. And with your ammunition trains and, su- and such supply trains are filled exclusive of ambulances, proceed against the enemy's cavalry. And when your supplies are exhausted, proceed via Newmarket and green Bay to Haxall's landing on the James river. And com- they're communicating with general Butler, procure supplies and return to this army. Yeah, and he did all of it. Yeah. It was pretty insignificant. I mean, granted, he did get he did get the prisoner wars out. He yep. did take the cavalry for a crucial two weeks while they were engaged in Spotsylvania. Yeah, so- which is just it's like oh, that that was like you and I were talking earlier today about this, and and you mentioned that's really Grant. Like he's taking a huge, huge chance with chance with this, and you know 
I do understand Meade being very apprehensive with Stewart's reputation at the time, very invincible oh. and all that. But, but Sheridan clearly, I mean, Sheridan, Sheridan, he's very arrogant and he probably was like, yeah, I can get that guy. And, you know, part of me thinks like, oh, was this just luck? But no, I mean, Sheridan's got way more men than well, Stewart. I and think, the, I, you yeah, know, he probably, he probably saw it as his last chance to bag Stewart. Yeah. The war was kind of winding down a little bit. They still had some time to go, but they weren't far from Richmond at this point. They're thinking, okay, we're going to sack yeah. Richmond. They didn't anticipate a, a, you know, a big, long siege of Petersburg. They, they, they were probably thinking they're going to get it pretty quick. I mean, for casualties for Sheridan, they lost 625 mm-hmm. guys, but they did get 400 back. So those, this, that's a negative loss of 225. You don't look at straight numbers. Yeah. Um, the Rebs only lost 300 guys, which is kind of a surprise out of the 4,000. But the big one, of course, was, was, was Stewart. Yes. And, you know, the death of Jeb Stewart, uh, it did a lot. Okay. Yeah. What it did is it, it crushed Robert E. Lee. Oh, yeah. He, he said, I can him. hardly think of him without crying. It took him until November to hire a successor, and this was Wade Hampton. He went because he, he just couldn't do it. Um, uh, no, it was I actually what the hell? Was it? Yeah, it was. Um, no, it was August. It was August sixth. August. Hired a successor. Yeah. So it took, it took a few months. Okay, and Lee would say of Stewart, he says he was second to none in valor, in zeal, in unflinching devotion to his country, uh, to military capacity of a high order, in all the virtues of a soldier. He added the bright graces of life. Okay, mm-hmm. this doesn't this doesn't sound like a guy who would say um, we have no time for that. We have no time. Okay, this sounds like a guy who really respected the, the capabilities of this guy. And I think you know when we look at a lot of the stuff that has happens in popular culture with Lee and Stewart, you realize a lot of it's probably not true. Yeah, because he clearly and this wasn't just because he died. You could just tell it really affected him. Um, I mean, you could argue it affected him more than it affected Jackson's death. I look at the quotes. I, I think it did looking at the quotes. Um, the other thing too, to remember in this is Stuart's family. Uh, his wife, Flora is going to be in mourning for the remainder of her life and she will never remarry at all. And she lived in Saltver, Virginia for 15 years after the war. She opened and taught a school in a log cabin. Um, and then she worked from 1880 to 1898 as principal of the Virginia Female Institute in Stanton, Virginia, a position for which Robert E. Lee had recommended for her. Uh, so mm-hmm. so that's really interesting. But yeah, like we have to remember like his family, he's leaving behind his wife and and two very young children. He does. And if, if you want to visit Yellow Tavern, good luck finding a lot of it. There's not much left. There's like there. a historical marker there, I think. I think I've driven no, by it no, one time. No, and well, if you, you, have, you must have I'm really wanted to see it if you drove by if it's in the middle of a neighborhood. But but it's the battle of the old town for the most part is gone. It's the victim of urban and suburban mm-hmm. growth. You know, Route 20, 295, like I mentioned, cuts right in the middle of it. Um, kind of like Monocacy is. Yep. Very similar. Um, the intersection of Telegraph and Mountain Roads basically is now covered with gas stations and strip malls. It's kind of sad the way it is. That yellowed in yellow tavern is obviously long gone. And, and it's even debated where it even was. Some people, th- it's, they think it's within about a 200-yard radius, but they don't know what side of the road it was on. Or, but but it's, suffice it to say, there's not a lot there. The part you mentioned, there is a small little field that is there, um, the area around Stewart's yep. warning site. So it's nestled in a quiet little neighborhood. Um, and there's a small park. It's got a cannon. It's got a flagpole. And it's got that monument. Now, the monument, of course, is to commemorate Stuart, naturally, right? Mm-hmm. And his wounding site was dedicated on June 18, 1888, by Virginia Governor Mary 
Fitzhugh Lee, who's governor now, his, his former division commander, is now yeah. governor, he's going to dedicate that. On the monument, in case you're curious, if you want to look, have a little lost cause fun, it says Jeb Stewart saved Richmond and gave his life. Lost so, cause um, fun. So if you have some fun with that. So I think at the, uh, at the end of the day, obviously, um, Jeb Stewart's one of those names, one of those mm-hmm. names. But I think, I think you know, we've talked a lot about how he compares to some of the other cavalry generals and he's going to be right at the top whether you whether you like him or you don't like him you've got to respect him for what he did um the, his impact was gigantic his loss i it doesn't his loss not affect how the, the battle or the war was going to end up for the confederacy but you can see as you're as lee is starting to lose his top lieutenants now how it is affecting the rest of his game plan. Yep. You know, Orland campaign is going to continue. It's going to, we talked before, it's going to end up with that siege of Petersburg and it's going to end up with, with um, Appomattox not far after that. But clearly the, the loss of Jeb Stewart is going to be one that's going to send shockwaves to the Confederacy. And it just, it's just, you can just tell it takes a lot of the steam, especially out of the Calvary. Wade Hampton, as good as he was, was not Jeb Stewart. No, I mean, had, Jeb is this know, like, he's, 30, what 31 years old when he dies he's a he's a young guy 30, okay. like yeah he's in his early 30s when he dies and you know his nickname at west point had been beauty but yeah he you know nicknames beauty honey bun oh my god but again you know you look you look at the overall picture with this and you can see yellow tavern like this at the very beginning it's a small battle i mean not a lot of troops went not a lot of casualties it's a very interesting one to study from a cavalry perspective it's got it all dismounted mm-hmm. it's got mounted it's got repeating rifles it's got charges it's got the hand-to-hand combat it's got the whole deal it's got sheridan versus stewart mano mano yep at the end of the day it's a small battle with huge ramifications like many of these do um the confederate cavalry really is not going to recover from this as good as hampton ultimately is um, it really is. A, it really was a, a knife in the heart to them, and the loss of Jeb Stuart was a gigantic, gigantic loss for me personally and for his armies. No yeah, question. it was. Uh, I was just gonna say, like, yeah, huge, huge loss. The other thing too with this battle is the the kind of the what happens before between Meade and Sheridan. This kind of it's it's almost like a rivalry in a way where Sheridan's like, I don't want to take orders from you, Meade. I want to take orders from just Grant, and it shows what is going behind the scenes in the Army of the Potomac. And I think it shows that, you know, how unfairly at some points Meade was treated, that he's just kind of like, wow, so you're just going to do that even though he's spoken to me that way kind of thing. Yeah, um, and yeah. it shows that. And, but but had this not happened, had Grant been like, yeah, I'm not going to let Sheridan do that. He can keep doing his recon. The Battle of Yellow Tavern might never have happened. As much as I think Grant was a bit of a dick to Meade and same with Sheridan, in a way it's a good thing it happened because... You know, it, it's taking out more of Lee. Um, well, no, there's no question. Know, there's um, no question. I mean, what, what Sheridan did, at the end of the day, Sheridan was right. He achieved all he of his goals. You know, we talk about Meridian campaign, how Suey Smith couldn't take out Forrest, right? Yep. This is kind of a bigger version of that, except he went for the big fish and got him. Well, yeah, he, so, he did. And he's... He's saying, I can go after Stuart. And I understand why Meade is like, oh my God, no, he's invincible. Like Meade is buying into that kind of the propaganda, what the papers are saying and all that. Grant does not say much about what goes down between um, Sheridan and Meade. Um, it's almost like kind of a father that, that doesn't want to deal with the drama between the children. You know, it's like, oh, no, no, they get along just fine. Grant just says, on the 8th, I had directed Sheridan verbally to cut loose from the Army of the Potomac and pass around the left Lee's army and attack his cavalry and communications, which was successfully executed. He doesn't say like, yeah, the kids got in a big fucking fight. 
and he doesn't but it was actually kind of like it was like Sheridan was going to Mead as like one of the one parent and being like yeah I want to do this and Mead's like no you can't and then Sheridan's going to Grant and being like you know dad won't me won't let me do this right like in a way that's what that it's like it's like one parent has said no so Sheridan's like fine (laughs) I'm gonna go to the other one and see if they say yes no, it, it's it's tough. It's it's tough to say. And it just it, it like Yellow Tavern. The background of it illustrates the behind the scenes of the Army of the Potomac, which is a lot of drama. And we see that even going into 1865 with like you know Sheridan and Warren. Sheridan is uh, like he's drama central. <laughs> so why I don't like no, Sheridan? I, he's drama central. He certainly is. But oh, you're frozen. Uh. Oh, you're back. You're All a little right. choppy. Um, you're back now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've lost power and I have no internet. So this no, is you're fine. You're still on. Data, so anyway, I guess we can pick to drop it off here anyway. I think we can finish up here. But I think um I think it's a good story to tell. So what's coming up next for us? So uh next week we are going to be talking part one of Battle of Seven Pines. We're gonna do two parts on Battle of Seven Pines. Um and then yeah, our schedule is gonna be a little bit wonky for the next few weeks because uh, we're going to be away um, to Gettysburg and some battlefields in that area. Just to let you all, you all know, anybody in the Gettysburg area on Thursday, May 26th at 7 o'clock, if you want to join us at the Gary Owen, we will be doing a live stream with our friend John Heckman of the Tattooed Historian. And that is at 7 o'clock. It is a free event. Just show up. Um, maybe try and get there early. But we're going to be upstairs at the Gary Owen doing that. Uh on 2.30 that day at um, on May 20, Thursday, May 26th, we are going to be doing a meetup at Oak Ridge. So if you're in the area for the live stream, join us at Oak Ridge. Um, and then Friday Friday evening, I we are going to be on uh, Matt Callery's Addressing Gettysburg, his Addressing Gettysburg today. We are going to be, he posts that on YouTube. We are going to be doing that with him. So thank you to him for inviting us to be on that. We will be doing that. We are going to be in just in that area for Memorial Day. So, yeah, if y'all are in the area, definitely try and join us for um, Thursday, May 26th at the Gary Owen Irish Pub for our live stream. We're going to be talking Maine at Gettysburg. So, yeah, Charles Tilden, Oliver Otis Howard, Ellis Spear, and maybe that oh. other maybe that other guy that Ames led, Hall? led the 20th. Francis McGillivray? Adele Bart Ames? Lawrence, Lawrence. <laughs> we'll talk. We'll talk about them. Also. We'll a talk a little about Chamberlain. I'm sure. <laughs> a lot of stuff coming down the pike. All right, so that, that's it for us. Any any final words from you, Fincherou? Um, thank you, yeah. uh, for doing such an awesome job with this tonight. You definitely know your shit with the Civil War. <laughs> and, you know uh, your stuff, Darren. Well, thank Darren, you, thank you, Funko Mary. Thank you so much. Okay. She's so nice to me. Oh my God. <laughs> Anyway, thank you for all the hard work you do for this podcast. And thank you to our listeners. Um, we had a great roundtable last night with, with some of you. Um, it was really, really awesome. So thank you for all your support for, you know, we've been doing this for almost two years now. And uh, yeah, we'll be back again with you all next week. How about you, yeah, Darren? Any f- final words? Any final words for me? Nope. I think I think I, I, think I hit all the spots. I think I got them all. So Ooh. I think we're good here. <laughs> Jeez, <God. laughs> but no it's um 
it's 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 a good uh, yellow tavern like like many of these episodes we talked about i love these ones because you know people may have heard of them they don't, may not know the details but the significance from them for the battles that are deemed kind of small battles um and that's what makes the studying this great is how is is how you can get in the, into the weeds with these type of these yeah. battles and you can make such significance out of them this one, obviously, the Stewart case is his death. Is, oh, yeah, is big, his, his death. It's a change in the cavalry for the AOP. Uh-huh. It's showing what is going on behind the scenes in the Army of the Potomac, all the drama that is going on with, shockingly, Sheridan, um, and just kind of how Meade is being treated as well. Um, and, and yes, the death of Stewart. And with the death of Stewart, you have to remember, like, his wife is in mourning for the rest of her life. He's leaving behind two young children as well. Lee has lost... Um, probably his best cavalier and as you said takes him a little while to replace it and it is just it's kind of starting to show the breakdown of the army of northern virginia personally like my opinion is stewart was never the same after gettysburg and this is just he lost his fastball i mean he had his fastball and at the riding around mcclellan but then after gettysburg he 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 never really gets it back no i would agree with that all right so that's enough of it for this one i'm going to head off so uh everybody thanks for listening again we appreciate it have a great weekend we will see you on our live we will hopefully see some of you next week when we get down uh, two weeks actually we get down to gettysburg a lot of fun stuff coming strange stuff afoot at the circle k for us mary coming down the pike so way to go all right well everybody thanks for listening again we appreciate it have a great rest of the week enjoy yourselves go celtics go bruins that's about it so whatever go guardians okay fine all right guys hi everybody okay see you later guys bye